0: To, to sit in the back. There's a reason to sit in the front. <laughs> no pressure <laughs> No pressure. Yeah, I just want to be able to, to hear you, you know when you so we, it, well we can hear each other when we're talking and discussing what we're learning from God's word together. It feels weird when I have the microphone because I'm louder than everybody else. And and it's hard to talk to the guy with the microphone because you're not as loud, as loud as him. But don't overthink it. Just say what you're going to say. <laughs> Today we're going to be picking up in Deuteronomy chapter 9. If you want to join me in your copy of God's Word, we're going to be beginning to... To look at a section here it actually goes from chapter 9 to 11 but we're only going to get partway through it as my anticipation I titled this message don't be self-righteous as you're going to see in this text that what the Lord says to Israel he says when you know when you guys get into the land I want you to, the way that this is going to work is it's I'm going to go before you. I'm going to bring you into the land. And the reason you're going to be able to subdue your enemies and do this is because I went before you. So don't say it's because of my righteousness that this happened. He's telling them, don't be self-righteous. And there's much to learn about ourselves and a warning against self-righteousness in our own hearts from this text. So I've given you a general sort of outline here which follows those Bible interpretation hermeneutical questions I often bring up, the, the what, why, and so what. You know, this section of Scripture actually, well, it works like that. Uh, so the first section here is going to be 9, 1 to 5. And the next one is uh, 9, 6 to ten eleven, And that's as far as I think we'll, we'll get. And then next week we'll pick up on this last section that goes 10, 12 to the end of chapter 11, verse 32. And you know when we talk about this concept of self-righteousness, we have another word that we use to talk about it that starts with L, legalism. It's like a potty word. Yeah, you never want it to that to be, you know, said of you. And anybody who is that never wants to describe themselves that way. Same with self righteousness. But ne- next week, I'd like to spend a little bit more time on thinking through that particular issue. You know, how do you recognize when you have a, a legal heart rather than one that's motivated by God's grace? And we'll begin delving into that. Even in this section here and answering this, the what why questions. So I think how the logic of this text works is, you know, the what is, what is being told to Israel is don't be self-righteous. It's like, well, why? Why should you not be self-righteous? It's like, you have been rebellious. You people are evil and stiff-necked. You are not you were not righteous people. Like, remember who you are. <laughs> and then the so what, this is that. So, what do you do then? If you're to not be self righteous because you have been rebellious, then God says, be righteous. Now, you see what's different here. It doesn't have self in front of it, it's not self righteous, but there's this righteousness that comes from somewhere else that's not self. And He says, circumcise your heart, is what He tells them to do, which presents a, a tension in Moses's sermon that we've brought up where he keeps telling them to, to do something that they can't do. It, they, can't even, they can't even hear this. He tells them to circumcise their heart and they say, we will obey everything that you have said. We will be self-righteous is what they, how they respond. He says, that's not how it works. And then that's all resolved when at the end of Moses' last sermon in Deuteronomy, he tells them that God will circumcise their hearts. Their salvation will be by grace and not by something that they did. So let's start by looking at the first five verses uh, in our outline here. You know, don't be self-righteous, beginning in Deuteronomy 9, verses 1 to 5. The Word of God reads, Hear, O Israel! You are crossing over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, great cities fortified to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? So you shall know today that it is Yahweh your God who is crossing over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and he will subdue them before you so that you may dispossess them and make them perish quickly, just as Yahweh has spoken to you. Do not say in your heart, when Yahweh your God has driven them out before you, saying, because of my righteousness, Yahweh has brought me in to possess this land. And it is because of the wickedness of these nations that Yahweh is dispossessing them before you. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you are going to possess the land, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that Yahweh your God is dispossessing them before you in order to confirm the oath which Yahweh swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak and that you teach us and instruct us even from an ancient text, which is timeless. And we have many things to learn about ourselves as your creatures, to learn how your salvation works by grace alone and not by efforts or earnings on our part. Pray that you would teach us more about who you are how your salvation works, more about ourselves, and that you would help our hearts to conform to your truth, to know you as you have revealed yourself. Amen. As you see in this text, the reason that you know, Israel is not to be self-righteous is because all these actions that will take place and which they'll end up being in the land is because of things that Yahweh did for them. He doesn't say, well, because you guys have a great military and awesome military strategy and you're smarter and stronger and more numerous than other people, that's why you're going to go into the land. But instead, what you see, it's, it's Yahweh is the one who crosses over before them. He's going to cross over the Jordan before them to destroy and to subdue so that they can dispossess. He's the... The initiator and primary actor in all of this is God himself. And it's all him working out his gracious promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and continuing on to these people. So you see the power that is at work here it's ultimately his power. It's not their power, it's God's power and not human power effort, or achievement. Uh, it, it's not because they had righteousness in themselves. And typically, you know, with the struggle of self-righteousness, you know, people don't, they, we don't talk about it that way. Uh, we, we actually rarely use the word uh, righteous uh, even. And that's just We'll keep that in mind. We'll we'll discuss that a little bit more here in a second. You see, the reason that they're going to come into the land is not because they had earned it or they had done something right. They haven't done something that was self-right to get them into like they followed the instructions, therefore it all worked out. But he says the reason is because of the wickedness of these nations. So the reason that you you're possessing the this land is they deserve to be judged. But there's, gonna, there's this other element in which they should be thinking, well, but we deserve to be judged and have been being judged pretty regularly. That's why there's a whole generation missing among us right now, actually. But it's like, well, why, why is this going to go forward for them? Why are they not getting destroyed with the other nations when they commit the same sins as the nations around them? Well, it's because Yahweh is keeping his oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. So it's like, when you get into the land, it's like, well, why are these people being displaced? Well, because they deserve the judgment of God. Why are we not being devoted to destruction? Because we deserve the judgment of God as well. Because God made a promise. He made a promise to Abraham to, to make a nation out of you to be a blessing to all nations. You can't perish, even though you deserve it. So you see this, Salvation and being this chosen people isn't based on how they behave, how they act, or anything like that. It's all based on God's gracious promise. It's all of grace. So the way that they were to think about victory, it wasn't, you know, victory is, you know, our righteousness plus uh, their wickedness. But rather, The victory is because of God's promise and their wickedness. So Moses here, he's exhorting the children of Israel to to look at this future conquest of Canaan, not as a result of the fruit of their righteousness, but it's a result of God's holiness. He's carrying out his holy judgment and he's using them as his ministering nation to do that. But he's also, at the same time while he's displaying his holy judgment, he's displaying his holy faithfulness to the covenant which he made to their ancestors. What you remember when we went through the book of Numbers, that was a a tension that was being held throughout that whole book. You know, God's holiness is a display that uh, judgment is deserved, but he's also faithful to keep his promises as well. And it keeps pointing forward to some seed of the woman who can make all of this right, who can reconcile holy God and sinful man. Another way that we talk about self-righteousness is a P word. Pride. Yeah, What, what is pride? How would you describe that or define that? Yeah, puffed up in your own estimation. You're, sometimes it's described as puffed up or lifted up. So if pride is and self-righteousness is lifting yourself up, then what is that doing to God in your mind? At least it's bringing Him down, right? It, because you're not, you're not lifting him up or ex- exalting him, but rather you're lifting yourself up and exalting yourself. And in that way, in your mind, it, you're bringing him down, which you actually can't do. You can't bring God down. He remains who he is. And I think it was last week we had talked about this idea that what, what pride does is, you know, it says, I, I did this. But self-righteousness says, okay, God did it. But it's because I did what he said, you know. I I did things his way, and therefore I got the blessing. Pride is also this sort of uh, self-sufficient attitude where we say, "You know, I I can, I can do it on my own. You know, I I got this. Yeah, I can put in the effort and change things and do this right here." Uh, Self-righteousness, on the other hand, says, "You know, you owe it to me," and it's disappointed when. The self-righteous person thinks, well, I did this thing, and so I should have had this result, but I didn't get the result I wanted. So then it, it, it assumes that God isn't being good to you because you didn't get the result you want from doing the thing in your self-righteousness. And we're going to try to delve into that, you know, in, in our own hearts. That's maybe one of the most difficult things to discern about yourself in all of life is to, because self-righteousness, can look like righteousness on the outside. And nobody can know that it's self-righteousness except you because it's ultimately, it has to do with the motivations of your heart. And you and you have the capacity within your own heart to deceive yourself. And so it's something where you, you need to be in fellowship with other people so that they can, And they need to know you so that you can have help in in that being exposed in yourself. And you should be suspicious that you're capable of doing stuff out of pride and self-righteousness or a a legalistic sort of heart. You know, it's not just those other people that do stuff like this. This is is you. This is everybody. In verse 4, we see a, a reminder that... The, the focus of God's law is on the heart. You see that in verse 4. He says, do not say in your heart. The heart is where all of your, your thinking happens. It's where all of your affections are. It's where your uh, will is. It's your control center. The focus of this whole model of the law is about the heart. What you see, you know, Israel had a great difficulty with this. Throughout the centuries, you might even think of all the way out in Luke 18, where it says there was a Pharisee. He stood and he he was praying these things to himself, which I hope you kind of catch the irony there. It doesn't say he was praying to God. He was praying to himself, and he said, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. So you guys f- fill in that own list on things that you think that, that we might say. You know, we might not say, well, thank you, God, I'm not like, you know, swindlers, unjust, adulterers. What are some things in which you think this creeps up in our heart? And we, we would say, you know, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like... Tonight we're going to watch a film here called Cessationist. It has to deal with, you know, scriptural teaching on Bible gifts. What do you, what do, you do with the sign gifts like tongues and prophecy? You know, you can have somebody who, th- who might say, well, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like those crazy people who sp- speak in tongues and give prophecies and stuff like that. You know, that, that could be a danger within us. And ultimately we want to have a, a, a heart that that surrenders and submits to what God's word actually teaches on those things Is it, you know the, thank you Lord that I'm not like those people who who don't understand doctrine as well as I do or those people who who don't serve in the church like I do they only show up for main service but I also go to, to home fellowship group and other things and why won't they join me in, in children's ministry, you know? <laughs> you see, this could creep up in our own hearts. And, also, and, and you would never say it this way. You would never say, you know, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that. Because you know that it's wrong to say that or think that. But you can still do that, but you just change the way that you're articulating it. You know, instead of saying, you know, thank you that I'm not like that. you say, well, I just don't understand how, how somebody couldn't do this thing. That I do, which is so right. <laughs> now, it's not that following rules are bad, but I think what you see about you know, self-righteousness here, is, or we, we could use this word being a legalist. Uh, you, you can be a legalist by following or not following the rules, which we usually think of the legalistic person. They're the ones who are trying to follow all the rules. But the legal element is they're seeing their relationship to God through his law. That's where those things are exactly the same. You're saying, well, the way I see my relationship to God is uh, I'm keeping the law. Or uh, I'm not keeping it, but it's okay. Because his grace will cover it. But the thing that they're seeing their relationship to God through is the law rather than through Christ. You know, they're looking at themselves and whether they're doing a thing or not rather than what Christ has done on their behalf, and that's something we're going to explore a little more next week. The the issue here is about self-righteousness, which, you know, again, it could be, you know, look, I, I, I don't follow the rules, or look, I do follow the rules, but you're thinking about everything through the rules rather than through who God is and the son that he sent to save us. And the irony is that the Israelites fell into this double-sided sort of legalism, which usually the way we talk about the other side of legalism is a word that starts with A, who knows what it is. Usually talking about when we like work through the book of Galatians, there's the legalist and then the antinomians, right? Uh, that nomian in there—that's you know, the Greek word nomos—is the word for law. So that's, you know, the anti-law sort of people. And so, and again, what you see that you know, what does legalism and antinomianism have in common? Is it's they're seeing their relationship through God's law rather than through His grace. They're both, they're twins in that way. One of the ways you can see legalism is it's often carried out and it's, it's trying to look at biblical standards of conduct to regulate our, our lives. But when we learn those biblical standards, we try to obey them to get God's favor. So I think, well, if I do this, it's going to get me something. So you would see this sometimes with Israel, you know, an example being Isaiah 58. You know, they, they were fasting to get God to do something for their nation. But the response that the Lord gives them, He says, I hate your fast and I, I hate your festivals because you're just you're just doing it because you think you're gonna manipulate me to do something that, that you want for yourself. You know, you're not concerned about, you know, my plan for creation, but you're you're just concerned about you know politics of your relation to other nations and you just want to try to to bend my hand to do your will well we should never fast or read our bible or serve within the church because we think well if i do this god will have to to make me happier god will have to make my life easier god will have to make me be recognized by other people and them uh, affirm me and talk about how amazing I I am because I deserve to be recognized and I won't be happy until somebody gives me a pat on the back. Another way that, you know, legalism, self-righteousness shows up is not in this, you know, trying to earn God's favor and not feeling at rest until we have found some enjoyment in our obedience or our righteousness. But another way it, it uh, can come out as we, we make up requirements for ourselves which God doesn't put on us. So th- that could be, that could be, and it could be a very good thing, by the way, it, it could be something like you, you dedicate yourself to reading four chapters of scripture uh, every single day. Now, does scripture ever tell you that you have to read four chapters of the Bible a day? You know, it's not it's not a requirement that that God puts on you, but where the legalism shows up is mostly in how you respond when you feel like you broke that law, which isn't a law that God has given you; it's just one you put on yourself. And you think, man, I only had I only got in like three chapters, and then you know I got this phone call, or I had to go to work, or whatever, and now my whole day's ruined because you know I didn't get all the way to to chapter four. And I can't love anybody today. Oh, that's why I couldn't get that parking spot. You know, I didn't, I didn't read my. Oh, that's why everything's just falling apart, and so and so's being mean to me, and I snapped because you know, if I if I would have read four chapters, I would have succeeded in righteousness and been much more successful in honoring the Lord today. And You see that that's something that's very self-focused, and it's a requirement you're putting on yourself that that God isn't, and you can also do that to other people. You think. You know, these other people need to to be involved in this thing or doing, like, you You can only have your devotions in the morning. You know, how do I know that? Because Jesus got up in the morning to pray. Therefore, it's a requirement for, for everybody for all time, and I will never be as warm in my friendship as I could be as long as I know that you're not having morning devotions and you're doing it in the evenings. This actually happens. We have to remember that our relationship to, to God is through grace. Our relationship to other people is through grace, not extra requirements that we would put on them or even on ourselves. And I hope you're like kind of picking up how, how difficult this can be to, to recognize in, in yourself. You're like, you know, what, what is my motivation for doing the things that I'm doing? Is it because God has been so gracious to me or because I'm hoping to get some particular result for myself out of this obedience. Well, what is the thing that that helps to protect your heart from self-righteousness? Well, it's to remember your tendency toward rebellion, your unrighteousness, to just kind of look at your own track record. How have you been doing at, at, at righteousness And this is going to be a tricky thing to to work through as you're going to see. But first I'd like to pick up in chapter 9, verse 6. And I'm actually going to read through 10, 11. And we'll continue here, 9, 6. So you shall know it is not because of your righteousness that Yahweh your God is giving you this good land to possess. For you are a stiff-necked people. Remember Do not forget how you provoked Yahweh your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day that you went out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place. You have been rebellious against Yahweh. Even at Horeb you provoked Yahweh to wrath. And Yahweh was so angry with you that he would have destroyed you. When I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant which Yahweh had cut with you, then I remained on the mountain forty days and nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. And Yahweh gave me the two tablets of stone written by the finger of God, and on them were all the words which Yahweh had spoken with you at the mountain from the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly." Now it happened at the end of 40 days and nights that Yahweh gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Then Yahweh said to me, arise, go down from here quickly for your people whom you brought out of Egypt have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made a molten image for themselves. Yahweh spoke further to me saying, I have seen this people and indeed they are a stiff-necked people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven, and I will make of you a nation mightier and more numerous than they. So I turned and came down from the mountain while the mountain was burning with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. And I saw that you had indeed sinned against Yahweh your God. You had made for yourselves a molten calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way which Yahweh had commanded you. And I took hold of the two tablets and threw them from my hands and shattered them before your eyes. And I fell down before Yahweh as at the first 40 days and nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all your sin, which you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of Yahweh to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and the wrath which, with which Yahweh was provoked against you in order to destroy you. But Yahweh listened to me that time also. And Yahweh was angry enough with Aaron to destroy him. So I also prayed for Aaron at the same time. Now I took your sinful thing, the calf which you had made and burned it with fire and crushed it, grind it grinding it very small until it was as fine as dust. And I threw its dust into the brook that came down from the mountain, again at Taberah and at Massa and Kibroth Hatavah, you provoked Yahweh to wrath. When Yahweh sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and possess the land which I have given you, then you rebelled against the command of Yahweh your God. You did not believe him, and you did not listen to his voice. You have been rebellious against Yahweh from the day I knew you. So I fell down before Yahweh the 40 days and the 40 nights, which I did because Yahweh has said he would destroy you. And I prayed to Yahweh and said, O Lord Yahweh, do not destroy your people, even your inheritance, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a strong hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, And do not look at the stiff neck of this people or at their wickedness or their sin. Lest the land from which you brought us say, because Yahweh was not able to bring them into the land which he had promised them. And because he hated them, he has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. Yet they are your people, even your inheritance, whom you have brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. At that time, Yahweh said to me, carve out for yourself two tablets of stone like the former ones, and come up to me on the mountain, and make an ark of wood for yourself, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered, and shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of acacia wood and carved out two tablets of stone like the former ones and went up on the mountain with the two tablets in my hand. And he wrote on the tablets like the former writing the Ten Commandments, which Yahweh had spoken to you on the mountain from the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And Yahweh gave them to me. Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark which I had made. And there they are, as Yahweh commanded me. Now, the sons of Israel set out from Beeroth to Benajachan to Masharah. There Aaron died, and there he was buried, and Eliezer, his son, ministered as priest in his place. From there they set out to Gadgoda, and from Gadgoda to Jotbatha, a land of brooks of water. At that time, Yahweh set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh, to stand before Yahweh, to minister for him and to bless in his name to this day. Therefore, Levi does not have a portion or inheritance with his brothers. Yahweh is his inheritance. Just as Yahweh your God spoke to him, I, moreover, stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights like the first time, And Yahweh listened to me that time also. Yahweh was not willing to destroy you. Then Yahweh said to me, arise, go on your journey ahead of the people, that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give to them. The reason that the Israelites weren't to be self-righteous is because, as Yahweh said, you guys are stiff-necked, you're rebellious, You do what is evil in the sight of Yahweh. They weren't morally superior people. Uh, They deserved divine wrath as much as any other child of Adam. And Moses, as he had mentioned, he said, you know, one of the reasons I know this, people, is because I have lived with you your whole life, (laughs) I have been with you this entire time, these 40 years in the wilderness. And so he tells them, you know, remember and do not forget that you have been rebellious and you are rebellious. And if you do enter to into the land, which you will, it's not a result of anything that you did. He's, and he's warning them, don't have some sort of spiritual amnesia like uh, your parents did when they were delivered from the Red Sea and they could never remember anything about the Red Sea. They never spoke about it when they were reminded about it. They just like, what are you talking about? You know, you think if you lived through something like going through the Red Sea that you would remember it and you might, you know, mention it at least once or twice afterwards. And he tells them also to remember the 10 words or the 10 commandments so remember, remember how long it took you guys to break every single one of them? It was like the moment that I walked out of the camp, that's about how long that it took. He says, remember, you know, there's this place, you know, right here before Mount Sinai that it's it's a geographical place that would you know, always remind them that this is the place where God has you know, given a covenant and you guys always break it. He says, remember that you're covenant breakers by the reminder of the broken tablets that were shattered before you. That you lived like you didn't want this relationship with Yahweh, which he was graciously giving you. And you said, you know, I would rather break it than have it. And he also reminds them, You should have been extinct, but why aren't you? Why didn't God wipe out every single one of you? And he says, remember, Moses interceded for you. And remember, when he prayed, what did he pray for God to be faithful to? He had to be faithful to himself and what he had promised to do. Because uh, Yahweh has this way of uh, teaching Moses to pray this way he says well Moses I'll just change my plan and I'll make a great nation out of you which Moses said that's not how this works <laughs> the nation comes from Abraham not from me and so he says, well you know Lord remember Abraham which you know it wasn't that the Lord needed to remember Abraham Moses needed to remember that you know, Yahweh was getting him to pray a certain way. He was bringing certain things to mind and pointing out this plan can't go differently. Uh, they they can't all be wiped out even though they, they deserve it because I've made a promise to Abraham that goes to Isaac, to Jacob, who was renamed Israel. It has turned into these 12 tribes which God has delivered from the wilderness. And what's at stake here is, you know, not just people and a, and a future nation, but uh, God's faithfulness, his name. Okay, he says, well, if you just wipe them all out and Israel ceases to exist, the other nations could say God decided to, to wipe them out and not keep his plan with them. He says, God, you can't do that because you, you, you can't be unfaithful. You can't let people talk about you like that. Uh, they have to continue to exist. You have to keep all of your promises with them, your entire plan with them, and, and never break it ever. The breaking of the first tablets signified the breaking of the covenant. And the second writing of the tablets were an expression of God's grace connected to God's mediator, who was Moses. God showed them, now, they they had to sin the way that they did so that they could learn something about themselves. Because it's like, well, what does the law do? Uh, It teaches you, it gives you a knowledge of sin. So they were given the law, and then what they learned was, we break every single bit of the law. But then the question is, well, does that mean that the relationship's broken and, and we we can't tabernacle with God? We can't dwell with him. We can't go back to Eden. And he says, the relationship's not broken. God's going to keep his end. Here, here's two more tablets. So he says, you guys broke your end on it, but God's going to keep his. So there's this extension of The way that this relationship is going to work is by grace. It's not going to be by you earning it or deserving it ever. And within this, you see that God even keeps his ministers, the the Levites, within that covenant. You have within the tribe of Levi, you have some of them which are chosen as priests and he says, this is also a reminder of God's faithfulness and that he's keeping his plan. He says, these guys are still around and they're ministering, you know, teaching God's word to you through, the you know, the worship system that I have set up for them. And you see God's unwillingness to destroy them or this people, which was to instill a confidence in God's promises. So when they look at this, they say, this stuff is still around. We... Like, we really messed it up, but the tablets are here, the priesthood is here, tabernacle still here, altar, the whole worship system still here. But it was, you know, to cure them of any sort of illusion that this is all here because of our ability to do what is right. It's like, no, this isn't here because of uh, our ability. Yeah, these things are here, and we're looking at the promised land and going to go into it because God has been gracious to us. Because you remember, right behind them is the you know the grave sites of an entire generation. I mean, they could see all this stuff right where they were standing. They could look back, and you'll know, see a mass burial site, and right in front of them, see the Promised Land. All of this is a reminder that salvation is by grace alone, and it's never by any amount of meriting it ourselves, and it's. It's never because of our greatness. You remember that one back in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7? It says, Moses preached, Yahweh did not set his affection on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But because Yahweh loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers... Yahweh brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He says, you know, God didn't do this because of your greatness. This is, for, he says you were his chosen people. Then golden calf incident happens. And in the end, he doesn't say now you're unchosen. He says, you're still my chosen people. That moves all the way forward to then they're guilty of crucifying the, the Lord Jesus Christ, their, their own Messiah. And God still calls them his chosen people. It's like, well, why are they chosen? Well, by grace. You see, it's never because of anything that they could merit or demerit uh, of themselves. It's because God has a specific plan with these people which he's keeping. And it's not because of their greatness or their righteousness or their ability to do anything. It's also not because of their giftedness. It's not because of their their greatness or their giftedness. We saw this in Deuteronomy 8, 16. It says, In the wilderness he fed you manna which your fathers did not know that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember Yahweh your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. So he's saying, when you go into the land, you can't say, you know, it's my power, you know, my might or my wealth. He's like, well, where did you get the power and the might and the wealth? He says, Yahweh, your God, gave you those things. That's that logic we read about the of Paul to the Corinthians. He says, what do you have that you didn't receive? Well, there's nothing to put on that list actually and then to come to back to the self-righteousness issue you know it, they were also weren't going into the land it, it wasn't the sentence isn't coming out right <laughs> it's not because you're not as evil as those canaanites so you can see, well the reason we're going into the land is because we're not as bad as those people you know, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like Canaanites, swindlers, unjust, adulterers. We're reminded of this, this same sort of reality in the book of Titus in chapter 3. This comes from Titus 3. It says, For we ourselves also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. But when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Is salvation ever because of right things that a person does? No, it's never because, you know, we, we went to church. You know, we, we said a prayer. Uh, we got involved in doing some nice charitable things. And then God decided to look upon us and show us some favor. He says it's never because it's because of mercy. And and if you don't think that you need mercy, you know nothing of this salvation whatsoever. But if you're thinking of salvation in terms of I need mercy, you get it. But if you're thinking of it in terms of I need to do more, you don't get it because you don't think that you need mercy. Therefore, you don't see your need for the only true salvation that there is. In Christ, you know, apart from God's grace, you know, all of us are Canaanites who deserve to be devoted to destruction. But we also get this sort of element being communicated here, and which the Lord's reminding Israel: you, you, you have been rebellious. You know, uh, to put it another way, we, we see ourselves as unworthy slaves. Yeah, you hear that sort of element, and which you know. I, you read this in the gospel of luke you know after after you know you you've done you know everything that the lord has commanded us to do you know what do we say you won't say well lord you're welcome (laughs) you know jesus is never going to say thank you to anybody Uh, we're only going to say thanks to him and say well we were just unworthy slaves we just we only did what you said to do but we can understand this sort of unworthiness in a wrong way or a right way. Uh, this unworthiness to understand it in a wrong way, it's a sort of self-pity where we say, oh, I, I don't do what is right, but I, I, need, I just need to try harder because you know, like, I should be doing better at this. And uh, I, I shouldn't be struggling with this sin. And you know, I, I should be serving more. And I should be doing more. Our unworthiness isn't a self-pity that we use to motivate ourselves to try harder. Self-pity is self-righteousness. Because you're saying, you know, I'm not getting the worth that I deserve being uh, attributed to me. But there's a different, there's a right kind of unworthiness that looks like I, I'm not worthy, but God is worthy. And this worthy God has redeemed me and, and brought me in to being an unworthy slave of his. So, and that's a totally different sort of motivation instead of looking at, oh, I mess up like this and I'm gonna try harder. It's different to look at as God's worthy of service and though I'm weak and failing, he, he, he sympathizes with me. I can come to his throne of grace and just move on from this point and trust him and follow him and believe that when I ask for forgiveness, that he gives it to me and it liberates me to, to be a minister of His, we don't try to balance out our sinful failures with righteous successes in our own strength. Okay, right, look at—we have this list of well, I, I do this, this, and this wrong, so I'm going to do this, this, and this right. But what what you get hung up on your thinking is I. <laughs> it doesn't go further than that. Uh, you could think of those sort of passages in Scripture and Ephesians and Colossians where it's tying off. You're putting off certain things and you're putting on other things, but there's something missing if all you do is put off and put on. You're missing, well, what about this Christ that you serve? Like, why are you doing this? And so, Well, you're doing this because of the gospel, uh, you're doing this because you've been set free from sin and you have a God whom you love and you you want to honor. And he's He's given you a heart to want to do these things. He's given you strength to do these things. He's given you fellowship with other people to help you make progress in godliness. But if you just get stuck with, I'm going to put this off and I'm going to put this on, but you never move from just I, I, I to it's because of Christ that I'm even thinking about this. It's because of his word and his grace that uh, I, I'm even trying to work out this repentance right now. So instead of trying to balance out balance out wrong actions with right actions, we're going to the savior of s- sinners who is our righteousness. He is our strength. You, know, you see that throughout scripture often, the, You know, we do these things in his strength, his might. But then when we read it, we think, well, I have strength and I have might to do these things. And we forget, well, where did the strength and the might come from? It's his strength. It's his might. It's from him. And it's also to be to him and through him. Good works don't make you more saved. So think, this is the the struggle of the legal heart, where you think, "Well, I'm doing good things, so now I can I can feel like I'm more saved today, or like things are better with my relationship with God because I pulled off meeting these requirements that I made up for myself. That they're not in the Bible anywhere, but like I feel better when I do these requirements, and I feel worse when I I don't do it because you you see that your feelings are kind of like an indicator for how you're perceiving your relationship to God. That it's through your righteousness, your obedience, your accomplishments rather than Christ's righteousness and what he has accomplished. But also, this is the the other amazing thing about God's grace is that when you do evil stuff, it doesn't make you less saved. It doesn't put you where you receive less grace from God. Or you get some kind of like subpar sort of salvation from him, and he moves you into another category. You know, there's like the the on fire for Jesus people, and then you. But it's that, and this is so liberating when you get it, because you recognize in this moment in which you're tempted to sin, you think like I could do this, like I could commit this sin, and it wouldn't change my being justified before God. It will have consequences in your life, to be sure. But it won't change the reality of your salvation. But it's when you think that, you go, so why would I do this? Like, if God has been so gracious to me that, like, he wouldn't just boot me out of his family by giving in to this temptation, why would I even want to offend and sin against grace like that? So when you're standing around and you're tempted to do a particular thing, you think, I could do it, and it, won't, it wouldn't change my salvation. It will have some consequences, to be sure. But to remember, I, I'm still going to be in God's family. Like, he's not going to un-adopt me because of this. Think, I don't, don't want to do that, because I, I wouldn't be representing my, my heavenly father. And you know, how, how could I sin against his kindness like that? When we rightly understand our unworthiness and Christ's gracious goodness towards us, it, it leads us not to, to work for his favor, but to rejoice because of his favor. So we don't try to like, okay, God, I'm gonna try to earn it with you so I can feel like things are, are better. But rather, I, I rejoice because things are right with you no matter how I feel about it. And you think about that, that, that can happen with, you know, our hope in Christ. Uh, does our, our hope in Christ coming again and, well, just think about that. Jesus is our hope. He, he's coming again. Does how you feel about that change if he's going to come again or not? If you feel hopeless, does that change the certain hope that he's coming again? No. So your feelings can be backwards to reality. But you can also have times where you, you feel hope. And it matches that reality that that's how things are actually going to work. So i got to recognize, you know, our our feelings can be backwards towards reality. You know, you you can, and this is way trickier than I'm presenting it. You know, we're going to read Psalm 32 in the the main service. And, you know, you're seeing a, a believer, David, who's praying for forgiveness. And you're like, well, why do believers pray for forgiveness? Like if all their sins are already forgiven, and Jesus teaches us in Matthew 6, he taught us to pray for the forgiveness. You know, Father, for, forgive us our debts as we, we forgive, you know, those who have sinned against us. Like, why do you do that if you're already forgiven? Well, you're not, you're not praying for a judge's forgiveness. You're praying for a father's forgiveness. You think about that? You're not praying to have, you know, everything in the courtroom set straight. That's already happened. But you're, you're praying for a restoration of how the fellowship feels. And yeah, just like you, you sin against somebody in the family, it's not like all of a sudden you're just, now you're legally out of the family the moment that you sinned against them. But there is a rift between you, right? And so you're not asking for a forgiveness that brings you back into the family, but you're, you're asking for a forgiveness that, that brings back a, a fellowship together. So you see where this, these are very complicated sort of things to, to work through and discern in ourselves. As we think about this text, I think it's, it's wise to ask ourselves at this point in our lives, have we forgotten our first love? Have you forgotten your first love like the Ephesian church did in Revelation? The scripture reads about them that says, the Lord speaking to him, he says, I know your deeds, and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot bear with those who are evil and put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. And You have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake. You also have not grown weary. That's a pretty good track record. They're really discerning. They have a lot of good teaching. They have persevered. They have endured for his name. They, they haven't even grown weary in doing that. And if that's all that you knew about, him, like, I'm moving to, to Ephesus. I'm going to become a member there. Which wouldn't be a terrible idea. But, but, he says, "I have this against you, that you have left your first love." What, you, what he's talking is it's that first kind of love. When, uh, when you first came to know the, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, everything was about him. Uh, everybody needed to know him. Uh, and there was very little that, that could inhibit you from making Christ known or being in fellowship. But as the years have gone on, I, well, you know, I don't know that I need to like really go out of my way to go talk to so-and-so because it'll be difficult and, and it'll be uncomfortable. And Maybe I'll just do something else. Or yeah, instead of going to, to break bread with the brothers, maybe I'll just like, Sweep my floor or sit in my chair or something like that. He says, you know, even though, now now look at this. You can be discerning. You can be persevering, uh, enduring. You can be not growing weary and have left that first kind of love. He says, therefore, remember from where you have fallen. He says, remember that first kind of love that you had. He says, and repent and do the deeds you did at first. But if not, I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Once not you see the grace of God in that? He's, he's pointing out the sin and he says, it doesn't have to be like this. You, you can turn back to that first kind of love. It's possible to claim to know God and to say that you'll obey him like the Israelites did and to actually be failing at both. So you can claim to know God and not know him. can claim to be obeying him and not be obeying him just claiming no God doesn't mean that he knows you and won't say depart from me I never knew you and claiming to love God but having a life that's apathetic toward his word or you see his commandments as as a burden rather than a lot a delight shows that well you you do have a God that you worship but it's not this one and you might associate that God in your mind with the God of Scripture, but it's actually one in your own image. You're going to say, well, those commandments are, are a burden, but I've made up some new ones and modified some of the ones in the Bible to make it like doable and make me feel like things are okay when they're not a way of searing the conscience. You can even be passionate about all sorts of expressions of worship, but all of them can actually be self-serving experiences because you're thinking about it you could think about this in terms of like worship music you start with what songs do i like you know which songs that make my heart soar. i just like the way that the music goes and i know the the part where uh, it feels like it's you know uplift i like the emotion i like the experience of it versus thinking about it from what kind of songs does god like uh what does he want me to sing? What kind of worship pleases him? You know, that's a very different sort of thing. And I think that was one of the quibbles in the Philippian church with Iodia and Syntyche. It doesn't say specifically that it was, you know, do we sing, you know, sing from the Psalter or do we sing some of these modern songs or not? I don't know what those ladies were quibbling about. But they were things that were preferences. And they were thinking about their worship in terms of, well, I, I prefer these things as, if, as opposed to, well, this isn't my church. This isn't our church. This is Jesus' church. What does he like? Uh, what, are, what are his preferences? We also have to be careful of, you know, we, we can take all sorts of slogans and phrases from the world and those sort of things end up guiding our life more than Scripture And we end up perishing for our ignorance of Scripture because we learn those phrases of the world which we swim in and we hear it all the time. Which perhaps all the more points out our need to be putting the Word of God into our hearts that we wouldn't sin against Him. Or we would recognize when we're receiving ideas that are counter to to God's Word. But we can't have that discernment and have that ability to, to understand a thing apart from taking in, growing in God's Word. We can also think that, you know, uh, you could say like a desire for good health, a desire for more money. We could think that it's something that's deserved or something that, that, that can be earned. And if I work toward it, I should get it, which is greed. You know, we're, we're greedy for that thing and we think that, that we should have it and we can have it. And if we do the right things... We'll have the health we want, we'll have the wealth that we want. But in the midst of that pursuit, we can have this appearance of godliness, right? Say, well, you know, I'm doing this so that I can serve the Lord in greater capacity. But all the while, you're really just serving yourself in the name of serving the Lord, who, who you're actually talking about is you, Psalm 37, 4, listen to this one real, real carefully. It says, delight yourself in Yahweh, and he will give you the, the, the desires of your heart. So now a lot of times, the way people hear that, they, they hear the desires of my heart. they like, bigger house, <laughs> uh, bigger yard, uh, to, to never be sick again, to always eat organic and gluten-free Nobody wants to eat vegan friendly. That's unfriendly to everybody. Uh, whatever you want to put in the list. But, but hear this text, it, it doesn't start with, you know, delight yourself in having bigger, better, and greater things, and God will give you the desire of your heart. It says, delight yourself in Yahweh. So you see what the desire of your heart is? It's Him. And He says, if you're delighting in Him, He'll give you that. Uh, if you're delighting in something else, Lesser than that, he might give it to you, but it'll be judgment on you. So I have a question for myself here. It says, conclude here and pick up next week? <laughs> yes. That's what we're going to do before we get into this next section on you know what it is to, to truly be righteous. Any questions or you know comments things that were insightful or helpful to you that any of you want to mention Joey you look like you got something on your mind back there That's not me that's the holy spirit and I'm not going to take credit for that <laughs> But that, that's good. It's a, it's a blessing. Like we would expect that of the Word of God, you know, to convict us. It says that that's what it does, and it's a it's a blessing to us. Andrew. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the the gospel liberates us. You know, we move from a religion of do to done. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now you're not trying to you know to to earn something with God. You're just enjoying what He's done for you. Yeah, like, God, there's nothing I, I I could do to earn this or deserve it. But like I I'm here because You've invited me and said that I I could be here. <laughs> you know, and there's. Uh, we talked about that last week, I think, that I did. like picturing yourself in the throne room of God and, you know, there's these angels around him worshiping him. And, you're, you know, you're there in your rags and, you know, with your <laughs> like, I think I better, like, go out this door over here, you know. <laughs> I, I don't belong in this place. But the, then he has his son come out and say, no, you you can wear these robes. Uh, you can be here, and, and you never have to leave. You can stay here forever. And there's some element of, of grace that should be, like, shocking to us like that. And it, it's, you know, like you said, it's not just, you know, people that are in a works-righteous system that struggle with that. Like, we, we struggle with that. Every human heart struggles with works-righteousness, and when we struggle with it, none of us wants to call it that. That's why I, you know, I keep bringing it up, it's so difficult to discern that in ourselves or to help somebody that's persuaded of it out of it. Because you, 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 you tell them the true gospel and then they say, well, okay, I'll try harder. I'm like That's not what I'm trying to communicate. <laughs> I'm trying to get you to repent of trying harder. Yeah. It, it, which reminds us that something supernatural has to take place within the human heart for that. For that to happen. Well, I'll close us in prayer, and we'll we'll be picking up on this topic again next week, and hopefully, you know, looking more at you know ourselves and gain a greater ability to enjoy the grace of God and to put to death self righteousness. Let's pray. God of grace, we praise you that our relationship to you is. Because of your Son, and not because of anything that you saw in us or anything that we did or could do, or because you needed something from us. Uh, you are perfectly blessed and happy and at rest and in loving relationship apart from us, yet you bring us to delight in you, the triune God. Solely by your grace have all of our sins been forgiven, and solely by your grace do we have this tension in our lives where we want to battle against remaining sin. Uh, We want all temptation to to go away, Uh, and when we consider how wretched we are as men and the body of death that we carry about, we pray that we wouldn't get hung up on just thinking of our wretchedness, but we'd be able to move to blessed be the God who sent his son Christ to redeem us from these things and to see that we're not what we used to be and we're not lacking and moving down the road a little bit. Uh, Progress has been made that we are going somewhere. Somewhere. That we are on your narrow path, that you are caring for us, that you are disciplining us and instructing us, that we do belong to you and that we are going to make it to the end because you are the author and finisher of our faith. And I pray that your mercy would motivate us to be ministers of your message of reconciliation. The only reason that we get to be people who praise your name, that we get to be people who... Uh, encourage fellow believers this morning and the only reason that we get to proclaim this gospel to those that don't know you is because you have given us this awesome privilege, one that we don't deserve. I pray that you would give us a fresh amazement of your grace, the privilege that is ours, that it would help us to repent and to return to our first love, that first kind of love when nothing could stop us from serving you and speaking about you. I pray that you would help us to fan into flame that kind of love and fear of you and obedience to you, listening to you so that you would be honored through our lives and our fellowship, amen.